You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash filmschool. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. In his new film, Sangre de Mes Sangre, our guest today, Christopher Zala, tells the story of Juan, who flees Mexico by hopping a truck to New York City. A provocative tale of stolen identity and fate, Sangre de Mes Sangre won the grand jury prize at Sundance in 2007. It will begin screening at the Lemley Sunset 5 in West Los Angeles and the Lemley Playhouse 7 in Pasadena this Friday, May 23rd. Christopher Zala, welcome to Film School. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? Are you in New York? I'm, yes, I'm in New York. I'm yeah. doing well. What's it like there? It's a little overcast today. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if it's decided if it wants to be spring or summer yet. Yeah. Would this be a good day to have shot the film? Yeah, most of it was set there. If you woke up and saw this day in front of you, would you have gone it, forward? If only it were this warm when we shot. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was that cold when you shot? It was brutal. Yeah? It was utterly, utterly brutal. It looked cold. Yeah. Especially the, the, the scenes uh, at, when you were going down under the building where Magnet lived. It looked cold down there. Yeah, it, it, it was pretty much cold everywhere. <laughs> Unfortunately, the film didn't seem to catch the breath quite as much as it, uh, as it could have. Uh, but we didn't have the Titanic budget to go put it in, you know, post. This film is in Spanish. And yeah. and yet uh, you're a white guy. Talk about a little bit about your ethnic background and and what drove you to to go in this direction. I grew up overseas quite a bit. Um, my my parents traveled extensively for work, and uh, they were academics. And they split when I was very young, and and had joint custody. And and I would go back and forth between them a lot. I was born in East Africa, for example. And uh. when I was eight, I moved to Bolivia, where I lived for a couple of years, and which is where I originally picked up uh, my Spanish. And that's, on some level, where I kind of got the bug for, for Latin culture appreciation and a real love for it. And, and sort of now I find myself, whenever I'm taking a vacation, I go to some Spanish-speaking country. So there was just, a you know, just, I guess, an openness and interest in that sense. And then the, the movie particularly sprung out of and experience and friendships that I had with a group of guys who were who were Mexican who were working in a, a restaurant here in Brooklyn. Uh, a, a good friend of mine worked there. He actually, when his student visa expired, he was Argentine. Got a job at this restaurant and and you know it was essentially undocumented. And uh, we would all go hang out after work after their work. And as I got to know them, I got to hear this very similar story emerging, which was really just the story of their plan, what they were going to do for the next 15, 20 years of their life, yeah. you know, which was send money home while being here and then go back and, and retire, you know, kind of relatively wealthy. I somehow from that imagined a character who was at the end of that period, but for one reason or another wasn't sending money home, as most do, and because he was undocumented, uh, essentially was forced to to stash yeah. uh, all the cash he'd been making, and it was it was actually that image, that idea of the only thing someone has to show for the last twenty years of their life, this pile of paper, really being this kind of incredibly uh, loaded image full of you know vulnerability and and sacrifice, and thought you know it, it was a great fountain from which a suspense film could spring. Yes. Now, do you still have contact with the uh, restaurant uh, workers? I do, some yeah. of them, yes. Yeah, have they had a chance to see the film? 
They have not yet, but uh-huh. I'm pretty sure it's opening in uh, their neighborhood this weekend. So yeah. um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure they'll be going this weekend. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear their yeah, response yeah, to too. it. That would be really interesting. Now, yeah, we, we have done screenings for, let's call them immigrants, uh, <laughs> undocumented immigrants, actually. And um, the response has been overwhelming. The, the trick is just to get them into the theater, you know. <laughs> yeah. In writing the screenplay, I hear that you, you were able to let go of it a little bit. That, you know, like most people writing their first screenplay are going to uh, be pretty much uh, attached to it. I, I'm wondering how it is that, uh, that that process went, that you actually engage with the uh, actors uh, in a language that isn't your first language. And then how did that work out? Did it change the script substantially or did they stay pretty much on script? Well, it was it was kind of a, a combination. I mean, I, I, speaking of film school, I went to film school at uh, Columbia in New York, and it's a pretty collaborative environment, um, which suits me really well. And I feel like a very collaborative filmmaker. I'm, I'm much more interested in hearing, you know, everybody's ideas and kind of hearing the best everyone else can be. I always get to make the decision at the end, um, so I still feel like I have control. But with the actors, especially, and given that. Spanish and certainly not Mexican Spanish is, isn't isn't my native tongue. I felt real comfortable just turning over the dialogue to each of them. In fact, I went through the entire each person's entire role with them, and they would tell me how they would say something if it was if they didn't like the way that it was, they would change it. But even when we were filming, the environment was incre- incredibly collaborative and, and even improvisational. And so, oftentimes, they would just change things as they were going. Sometimes they'd walk up to me ahead of time and say, look, 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 this is what we just came up with. Often it, it worked. They, they, I, I generally wouldn't have them stray too far from, you know, I needed to have all the beats to hit, the meaning needed to remain. Um, but other than that, I didn't care too much. I mean, sometimes they would utterly change the meaning of a scene, and I would have to say, well, sorry, guys, that's coming in 30 minutes, so <laughs> um, hold off. But it, it was a lot of fun, actually. Jesus Ochoa, is that right? Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, Jesus Ochoa. Uh huh. He's been around for a while, and yet not too many Americans are familiar with him. Can you talk about his uh, cinematic past? Yeah, he's he's won a couple of uh, Ariels. They're called it's the, the Mexican Oscar. Uh-huh. Uh, he's, a, he's an extraordinarily well-known actor in Mexico. Although he's actually been a little bit typecast down there. In yeah. fact, when I went to cast in Mexico City, I was. I was warned away from him by a lot of people because they said, no, no, you can't use him. He's a corrupt cop. That's all he he does, which is, you know, the role that he always plays in Mexico. I mean, almost every Mexican film has a corrupt cop, and it's Jesus Ochoa. (laughs) Um, Uh, And he played that in an American film production, right? Man on Fire? Yeah, exactly, and, and he played the same thing in Man on Fire. But but I didn't, you know, I didn't have that history. I didn't have that typecasting. I was just able to, you know, meet the man and meet the actor, and you know, whoa, what a powerhouse! <laughs> yeah, I imagine it was refreshing for him to play another role too, instead of getting typecast to play someone with a. I I, I think it would be a little bit more range than a than a corrupt cop. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure, and, and he has such a sense of gravity and kind of severity around him, which which fits well for the cop role, but he has this other sort of luminous quality that I don't know I've ever really been able to see him demonstrate before, and it was a real joy to watch that come out in the movie. Well, yeah, he used the word that I was going to, which is, I was going to say gravitas. He gives this film a real center, uh, and uh, yeah. and he provides the the, uh, the sort of the emotional gateway into all of their lives. His ability to work off of all of these characters is it's he's a terrific actor. 
Was... Yeah, originally the, the film was actually, you know, he was the title character, essentially. The original title was Padre Nuestro. Uh-huh. So he was, it was our father. We're speaking with Christopher Zala, the director of Sangre de Mesangre, and you said, uh, was it Padre Nuestro was the original name? Now, yeah, when we won Sundance, we were Padre yeah. Nuestro. Talk about how that changed, why you made the There's change. The story in the, behind the name. Yeah, it's kind of a funny story, partly annoying. Um, <laughs> well, there, just so you know, is, Christopher, I'm sorry, was, yeah. real quick, it's still listed on IMDb as... Well, IMDb has this policy that they list a movie under however it was originally screened. Oh, um, okay. And it was originally screened at Sundance, so okay. our title there... So, so if you go back and you look at like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, it's actually Italian is the title that shows up when you oh. search for Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which is, you know, annoying. Uh, the poster for the new one's up, but basically what happened was there was a Chilean film of the same title that we weren't aware of when we were making the movie or even when we released. And after we released, they started popping up at actually some similar festivals to us, um, and there was a confusion there. And we ended up getting nominated for a Goya, a Spanish Oscar, basically. And everything on the information nominating us was correct, except at the very bottom it said the country we were from was Chile. <laughs> uh, and we, something was wrong, and, and it and it ended up actually going to them, and the Spanish press got all huffy because I guess it's some, you know, lighthearted comedy that people didn't like that much or something. But <laughs> then the thing starts showing up on um, cable, you know, like Cinemax, except it says it's directed by me and starring Jesus Ochoa. <laughs> oh uh, my goodness! And it, and in fact, if you go if you go to the IMDb, the first thing on the forum down there is someone saying, airing on Cinemax, January 8th, with the theatrical <laughs> release. Um, so there was, there was a, a real sense of confusion, and, and you know, my relatives would even call me and be like, hey, we saw your movie. Oh, it no. Was okay. uh, it was okay. It was okay. That's a, quite a contrast between the two films, too, I, yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. Now, what was it like uh, to win the Grand Jury Prize? I mean, this is, your, this is essentially your first time out of the box, and you're at Sundance winning the Grand Jury Prize on a... And a project, of course, it means a lot to you, but how did that accentuate that feeling in you when you won the award? It was totally mind-numbing. I mean, you know, it was uh, uh, the experience of being a filmmaker at Sundance is a lot like, I'm sure, the experience of drowning. (laughs) Um, You know, at least if if you've got a small movie. I mean, it's such a humongous production, and, and, you know, movie stars are all around. There are products from every place on Earth being promoted there. I was so utterly overwhelmed by the process. And I remember as we were going through in the awards night, just said, well, okay, I guess this is what it was. Oh, well. And then they, you know, announced the, the last award of the evening for the Grand Jury Prize, and, mm. and we win. And, and uh, I don't think my brain started working again for about 30 minutes after that. <laughs> it's got to be amazing. Well, I'm sure just to get into Sundance, and all, I mean, all that stuff. They, and people say this all the time. It's just a thrill to be nominated or it's a thrill to be here and all that stuff. It's such a prestigious event, and you, there's an intense scrutiny of these films that can roll through Sundance. So congratulations. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Now, the look of the film is, is really beautiful. Uh, mm-hmm. did, did you intentionally go after a look? Did you give instructions at your director of photography? Is it uh, Igor oh, Martinovic? Absolutely, yeah. Igor Martinovic is his name. He's, he's Croatian, and he's going to be a star. I can't wait to watch him keep, keep going. In fact, he's, he did a documentary this year called Man on Wire that won the Grand Jury Prize for the documentary section. What was, what was the name of it? Man on Wire. Man on Wire, okay. About a guy who crosses the the World Trade Center back in the seventies. Oh, oh right, yeah. right, right, right. I've heard about that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's that's Excellent. coming. Yeah. Okay, good, good. 
Yeah, um, Igor actually has a, a really strong documentary background, which is one of the things that drew me to him. But more than anything, it was his energy and his understanding of what I want to do with the movie and, and the material. We clicked immediately. In fact, he was the only DP I met with um, because I knew so so certainly after meeting with him uh, that he was the guy. And we very quickly developed a, a really great visual language and, you know, we were dealing with certain difficult realities. Central to that was a lot of this movie, if not the majority of the movie, actually, is shot at night. Yeah. And we're a very low-budget film, and shooting at night without proper lighting can look terrible. And, you know, we had been planning on shooting on Super 16, and Igor really lobbied for um, shooting on 35. And I fought very hard, and he ended up getting his way. Um <laughs> We ended up shooting on Super 35, which basically holds the image together a lot more, has a lot more sensitivity to light because of yeah. the, the larger aspect. But in terms of creating a look, film noir came a lot into the conversation, particularly about how the city itself can be characterized yeah. um, to give to give the city a real personality. Um, we were we were both really interested in the use of shadows. I was really interested in portraying darkness in a true way instead of, you know, kind of this bluish hue that you get, but you can still see everybody that you see normally. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to just not see the face that well or not see, you know, to actually obscure with darkness rather than to imply darkness. And these are things that are extraordinarily risky professionally because, you know, essentially it's, it's so unconventional that it can just look like a mistake. Yeah. But Igor was, was totally gun, gung-ho, and, and we just used a, a lot of ingenuity. We, we coined a term, on this, a term on this movie called street gaffing, huh. um, <laughs> which basically, because we didn't have the budget to throw up condors and, and light city blocks at night, we drove down for about two months right before pre-production, uh, drove down every street in New York City looking for the, the particular kind of mostly industrial locations we were looking for, but right. that were already sort of very well lit by existing security lighting. Mm-hmm. And there's a particular kind of security lighting it's called um, mercury vapor that throws out this kind of bluer, greener yeah. hue, which you'll see a lot in the movie, although yeah. we we did do um, processing after and, and pulled some of it out and, and ended up giving it almost a more metallic look. That became a very common uh, lighting scheme in, in the movie, a common tone, um, and in fact, we even went to Home Depot and bought extra of these of these lights and, and fashioned their own housings to use them indoors sometime. So they're almost like the security lighting, or is it like a work light? That no, you... yeah, they're like they're like flood security lighting yeah. that you see up on the side of a building in an yeah. industrial neighborhood at, at night. Yeah, well, it has a great look. You know, I would I wouldn't guess that this was lit by by Home Depot. <laughs> or, but it but it's a wonderful look, and it also the way way things are set up too, the way the characters are crossing paths without mm-hmm. knowing that they're crossing paths. That that was mm-hmm. done in a way that w- was very believable, and sometimes that's tough to do. Did it take a lot of work to come up with that, or did did you guys pretty much know how you were going to? Well, for example, one shot above the building, looking down. As yeah. uh, as uh, Ochoa's character is passing, I think it's uh, Magda and Pedro. Yeah, Magda and Pedro. Yeah. Did you have right. that in mind, or did that just come to you when you were on location? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I mean we needed a you know a, a seven story uh, cherry picker for that to lift us up. Oh okay. Yeah, no, we we actually storyboarded pretty much the whole movie, which was would again a, a product of just the budget that we had and knowing that we didn't have a lot of time to 
come into a space and, and, and dally around. So we did all that we could to pre-plan. There were, there were some scenes, especially certain emotional scenes, where we intentionally didn't plan anything, and we wanted very much to follow the actors. That, that was the other great thing about Igor, that he was as crazy about preparation as I am. This film has the sort of dramatic structure of a Greek tragedy. I think that's mm-hmm. the appropriate way to put it. Did, was that a conscious decision on your part? Were you influenced in some way? I don't know if I, I was I was consciously doing it. I would certainly say that I'm definitely influenced by really, if anything, the history of, of classical yeah. dramatic narrative. And that certainly starts with the sort of the Greek tragedy, but yeah. you know, through, through Shakespeare and even into cinema. I mean, and, and theater, you, you don't see it too often in cinema anymore because we like to make people really happy these days. But someone mentioned coincidence before. I always thought coincidence was an incredible dramatic uh, device yeah. when used when used in the right way. I mean, you know, you think of Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, you know, you think of Romeo and Juliet, you think of somebody waking up in the wrong moment and not realizing that he'd just taken poison. To me, that's part of tragedy is that, you know, these near misses where if you had just turned 15 degrees to the left, your whole life could have turned out differently. I really wanted to posit the movie in a world where, in fact, chance was everywhere so that on some level you were emphasizing fate more than anything. Mm -hmm. We're speaking with Christopher Zala, and the film is Sangre de Mesangre. I love the way the film opens with Pedro running and Pedro running. It, it, it opens and closes with the same character uh-huh. running. Yeah, Juan, actually. But I'm yeah. sorry, Juan. <laughs> it's very confusing. When one person no. steals another's identity... The film worked because yeah. you didn't even know who was who. No, I knew. <laughs> I, 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 that's the other thing we really need to, to talk about in the film. It's about identity. How fleeting our identity can be in terms of the rest of the world, our relationship to the rest of the world. I think even maybe more specifically our, our relationship to some concept as abstract and yet maybe concrete as, as home. Uh, as as family, you know, what what are those things? Are they about are they about place or are they about you know relationships? That that was certainly some stuff that I was really trying to some questions I was really trying to ask. And in Pedro's case, it might be money because I, I did notice he was he, he was picking some up at the beginning of the film when he's yeah. running and and yes. spilling some out when he was. Uh, when he was running at the end. Yeah. So, uh, how did you come to pick those characters? What, who, who are the actors for that, and, and how did they uh, come to your film? All three of the Mexicans, um, that's Jesus Ochoa playing the lead, and then Armando Hernandez, who plays Juan, and Jorge Adrián Espindola, who plays Pedro, all three um, were cast out of Mexico City. It took several trips down and oh. had to go through you know, tons and tons of people. But... You know, as is often the case, when the right guy walks in, your search is over immediately. Usually doesn't even have to open his mouth. Um, <laughs> in, in this case, though, interestingly, both, both boys, and I guess fittingly, came in reading for the other part. Oh, really? Uh, huh. Yeah, but, I, but it was just very clear to me right away uh, who, who, who was going to be who. Yeah. <laughs> But now you're excited. This is the opening week. Uh, I'm going to urge uh, anyone listening that uh, this film is opening here in Los Angeles at the Lemley Five and the Pasadena Playhouse. Seven. Seven uh-huh. this week. Well, you know, it opened in New York. How did that go? It, uh, it, went, it went very well. I think we were the number three grossing screen in the country. Oh, really? Oh, uh, great. Yeah. That's good um, to hear. 
It's tough with the with the smaller films, uh, especially when you're going into blockbusters. I think next week we open against Indiana Jones yeah. uh, in LA. <laughs> the one thing that's that's certainly been the case is that the people that are seeing it are, are really affected by it and are talking about it, and uh, hopefully that that will you know allow the word of mouth to take hold and 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 let the movie kind of take root and grow. How's it going with the immigrant community? Has there been any real feedback there? Only when we've, when we've screened it for them. I mean, I, I, there's been a slight regional difference, I think, in, in approach to it. But, uh, but overall, I mean, certainly there's, there's an immediate appreciation of the, the accuracy, the verisimilitude. Uh, you know, they love the language. They love the slangs, the colloquialisms that the, the guys speak with. Yeah. I mean, you know, I had a guy last week when we screened the movie. Uh, he kept asking me all these question he's really enthusiastic and 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 then afterwards he came up to me and said i just i just came from the kitchen you don't understand how how perfect that is the way that they play around the way that they pinch each other's asses all that stuff you don't understand <laughs> and, and he pulls out a review i said how'd you find out about it? he pulls out a review from the new york post and uh, so you, you get that but i mean even at sundance when we screened um one of the sweetest moments for me was uh after one screening up in the rafters in the back corner of you know this huge theater this group of like 10 guys stood up and all screamed at one time, Viva Mexico! Excellent. Yeah, and it's just like, you know, it's nice to know that, that you're really communicating with people and, and touching them in a way. And, and you know, and I, I think that's a real testament also to the to the inclusion of the actors and the way that they pulled off what they pulled off and the, the level of authenticity that I think they really brought to the film. No, I think so as well. Well, he did a great job. It's a very affecting film. We're speaking with Christopher Zala, and the film is Sangre de Mi Sangre. The English translation of that, by the way, is Blood of My Blood. Blood, right. Very good. Thank you, Christopher Zala. Thank you, guys. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, Visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.